Hello and welcome to episode one of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the book Free Will by Sam Harris. Welcome to The Reading Cure, the podcast where we discuss great books that change lives. My name is Dr. Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr. Alexander Fox. Well, let me begin by quoting Sam Harris from the first page of his book, Free Will. He says, If the scientific community were to declare free will an illusion, it would precipitate a culture war far more belligerent than the one that has been waged on the subject of evolution. Without free will, sinners and criminals would be nothing more than poorly calibrated clockwork and any conception of justice that emphasised punishing them rather than deterring, rehabilitating or merely containing them would appear utterly incongruous. And those of us who work hard and follow the rules would not deserve our success in any deep sense. It's not an accident that most people find these conclusions abhorrent. So says Sam Harris. Now in this episode we'll be delving into this fascinating issue of free will and we'll consider what the lack of free will might mean for our mental health and the broader goal of living an authentic, happy and meaningful life. So Sam Harris, of course, is a very successful and well-known American public intellectual. He's a philosopher, neuroscientist, best-selling author, and he's the host of the Making Sense podcast. He's taken part in many public debates over the years with speakers such as Deepak Chopra and Jordan Peterson. His books include The End of Faith, The Moral Landscape, and Waking Up. Sam has been nicknamed one of the four horsemen of new atheism, along with Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett and the late Christopher Hitchens for their public critiques of religious faith. And Sam received his PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA in 2009. So we know now a little bit about the author and a bit about the book itself. So now, Alex, what I wanted to ask you about, first of all, was the issue of free will. Um, Why is it that this is something that people find quite a, a tricky uh, pill to swallow, the idea that perhaps we don't have free will. Um, why do you think the stakes are so high when it comes to this particular issue? Well, I, I don't want to really try and speak for everyone here, but I suppose I'm going to have to, to, to some extent. Uh, I've had some heated arguments. I don't consider myself, you know, a very argumentative person, but I've had some heated arguments on the topic of free will. So people do feel very strongly about it. I think one of the one of the things that, that people object to to this idea that we have no free will is that it means that we're not free and so we're under someone's power or so, under someone's coercion. And usually it's this idea of fate. So, you know, a lot of people think that if we don't have free will, it, it implies fatalism. You know, this idea of some malign fate that's going to uh, control our actions, that we, we have no choice and it is not going to be working in our favour what, whatsoever. So, that, that you know, they, they kind of find it quite an ominous uh, you know, doctrine or outlook that, that, that fate is going to control them and they're just like puppets, really. Of course, the, the, I'm not sure if Harris really helps with the, the cover of his book, isn't it? Because I think there is a kind of like puppets. <laughs> Some puppets on it? a string, uh, yes. Puppets on a string, and I don't think that, pro- I mean, it didn't really 
you know, hinder any sales of the book, I imagine. But it does kind of illustrate how a lot of people feel about the absence of free will. They think that they would be just the puppets of a, a malign fate. To me, that, you know, is understandable, but it isn't actually what determinism or the lack of free will would necessarily mean. Uh, what what determinism would mean is simply that, you know, our wishes, our desires would be our own, but they would have this causal history, you know, the, there would be this chain of cause and effect, but they would still be ours, you know, the, you know, it wouldn't be that we would be just propelled by something external to ourselves. it doesn't really mean that, but that's what a lot of people seem to think it means. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Um, I think that there is a lot of there's quite a misconception about what it means to not have free will, and I think I think you're you're right there that what people imagine it means is not necessarily quite what it would mean. Um, I think so. For example, um, when when people think backwards to some of the poor choices they've made in the mm -hmm. past, um, we we are inclined to just assume that we could have done something differently. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And obviously that's one way in which Harris is, is making the, the, the case that that really isn't, isn't quite right. Um, and he's also, I, I guess, saying that we also don't create our desires in a void. Um, as you said, they have mm -hmm. a causal history. So we happen to like particular things, sometimes for reasons that we're aware of, sometimes not. But in either case, none of this has come out of a void. So I suppose essentially saying that we don't have free will, that are, that are the two things that are impossible according to that, that outlook. But as you said, um, it's not to take away from the fact actually that people have desires and will feel happy and feel like they're living a fulfilling life when they, they pursue those. So I think this fatalistic idea that, well, what's the point in trying if you don't have free will? You might mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. lie in bed all day. I think, um, and that's that's that example, I think Harris in the book actually um, s describes the fact that, no, that's not the case. In fact, you, you would, you, you, you're not almost in a way free enough to simply choose to lie in bed all day because you'll find that all sorts of desires arise within you that, that trump that that sense of apathy um, in many cases. Um, another issue that, that came to mind, uh, Alex, I was thinking about was that people really bulk at the idea that that we're not morally responsible for our actions. Um, in, in the book Free Will, Sam Harris starts by describing a very, very grisly crime that I'll, that I'll not kind of go through the details of. And just to highlight the point that the idea that we're saying that those criminals were not free to make that choice, that, that any other option was actually available to them. To say that that's not the case really grates on people. Um, do you think that's a misunderstanding in some ways, or do you think that's that's simply what, what what's being claimed here? Well, it isn't a misunderstanding to say that if there's no free will, then the, you know, killers, serial killers, uh, rapists could not have acted otherwise. That is not a misunderstanding of what uh, having no free will would imply. Uh, yeah. But, but I think the reason that people find it so abhorrent is that it, it, it seems to really undermine a sense of justice. You know, this idea that if you have free will, then they could have acted otherwise. And since they acted in this, you know, abhorrent way, they then deserve to be punished. And that, that sort of punishment that, you know, we could affect on them is often a way of coming to terms with... Uh, you know, the abhorrent act, you know, it can make us feel better that at least justice was done. If there was yeah. no free will, then we have a situation where 
you know, it's much harder to justify that punishment. It, you couldn't blame them as ultimately responsible for what they did. Um, so I don't think you could punish them, at least in that sense, or for that reason. I mean, you know, some people might offer pragmatic reasons for for punishment, but the, the, the argument, uh, it's not inevitable that they should be punished, whereas if free will does... Uh, exist, then it's like they deserve that. Uh, they deserved our blame and they deserve some retribution. And, uh, you know, people find that hard to get up, give up, understandably, because they think that they're throwing away the the whole notion of justice. Um, and, and, you know, everybody's aware of the concessions they've had to make in their lives, you know, where they've been tempted to do a certain thing, but have ended up doing the right thing. And, you know, overall, I'm sure they're glad that they did that. But still, they know the, the battle that they've fought inwardly to do the right thing. And to then just say, well, those that did the wrong thing couldn't do otherwise um, could be quite painful um, to recognise that. I think so, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's like, um, I suppose, that, you know, we feel that strong desire for retribution when we hear about something horrible that's been done. and And that's, of course, a perfectly healthy thing to feel but i mean again it doesn't necessarily change the the reality of of the issue of free will i guess here um we can feel that and of course as you said there are many reasons we we choose to make sure there are very strict consequences for for harmful acts but i guess nevertheless we we don't we we best not blind ourselves if sam harris is right here to the fact that those individuals who committed that unpleasant act that we feel we wouldn't personally have committed um, may not have been able to do otherwise given all the circumstances of their lives and all the factors leading up to that point. In fact, it would seem unlikely they, they could have done otherwise, at least according to this determinist view. Um, and, and and that's why Harris uses, um, you know, he uses natural metaphors, you know, like a natural disaster, you know, that, that killers would be like a natural disaster. So in some, you know, for some people it would feel dehumanizing, almost like we're getting stripped of our humanity to equate a serial killer with a natural disaster. It might seem that we're actually dignifying the person as a human being by punishing them. You know, that they had this, this capacity that is, that is distinct from the rest of nature, this capacity of free choice. And uh, so when we, when we, when we are, putting them on trial when the you know if they're found guilty and they're punished it could be seen as part of treating them as human as well yeah i think i think that's a that's also um a, a good point there i think um there's something that people really feel is human about about free will obviously um of course we 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 have have a strong aspiration towards freedom in other regards, political freedom and so on. But there's, it seems intuitively right that this should extend into the the psychological realm as well. I guess for people, um, which yes, yeah, leads me to to a second question. I thought it might be interesting for us to consider, um, which is so how how compelling are the arguments that Harris is is given in this book? Then does has he really demolished the concept of free will do you think or is it a little bit more open than that well i mean you know in in, in my opinion the the neuroscience argument that he, he gave is a sort of is simply a neuroscience argument of a more 
general argument, you know, which is the idea that if we have free will, then we would need to be at least on most occasions able to do, you know, either A or B. You know, it wouldn't be that we could just do one thing. And also we would have to be the conscious author of our decision. We would have to say it was myself that did this and I did it with, you know, full awareness. Um, his neuroscience argument undermines particularly that issue of, you know, self-control and being a conscious agent because he thinks it can be shown that uh, the vast majority of our thoughts, intentions, beliefs can be traced back to our unconscious minds, um, unconscious causes. So if, if that's the case, then we could be ultimately in control of what we think and what we wish to do. And to me, that is compelling because I, I just don't think that if we introspect, uh, you know, our own experience, that we feel that we know everything that goes into a given desire or motivation to do something. Uh, it, that would be quite a, a big claim to say that we we know all that. Um, and the alternative would be that if we do a certain thing consciously, then that just was the very start of that causal chain. But that's quite a, a difficult claim to make because why should that be one cause in the whole universe that didn't have a history when everything else has a causal history? Yeah, so, I, I, yeah. I thought it was interesting. Sorry, sorry I, because there was a good quote I noted down here actually from from that uh, section of the book that you're describing, and he, and he's talking about how if we we take the neuroscience evidence, but we then are a bit subjective and we look in, into ourselves to see well what does happen when a thought or an idea comes to us. And um, the quote is, he says, "The next choice you make will come out of the darkness of prior causes that you, the conscious witness of your experience." did not bring into being. And and as you say, I mean, a thought pops into your head. Mm -hmm. um, it might be a desire for something. It might seem like freedom on, on some level as you're saying, uh, 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 you know, the, the fact that this has just come, but actually it's come from somewhere we can't access, but it hasn't necessarily come out of a void. It's come out of, as you said, our unconscious, I guess, our, our yes, prior yeah. Well, I mean, if, if, we, if we think about, the alternative that if if we do possess free will, then you know, as some philosophers have said, we could call that part of us the originator. In other words, it originates a causal chain, right? The yep. thing is, well, what's the history of that? How did that come into being? <laughs> because yeah. if it came into being, then you know, it's part of a causal chain. It's determined. Um, likewise, this originator part of us can't be influenced by our thoughts or intentions because, again, that would give it a, give it a causal history. So it's it's a rather mystical entity in many ways. Um, and and you know, Harris saying that that uh, our conscious thoughts and intentions have this unconscious background history. I think that would be hard to 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 refute. Really, I I, um, I would agree. I mean, there was a good example he gives at one point where he says, um, "Say a person is is wanting to get their their daughter a birthday present, mm -hmm. and they pause for a second, and then the thought pops in their head, ah, right, a goldfish, you might like that, and then they make the decision to go and get one. That person might be thinking that is a you know an act of free will because this uh, this idea has appeared and they've acted on it, and they know that other presents were possible. But really, when you reflect on that kind of situation. 
something has triggered that thought. It might be they know that their daughter likes fish or that they maybe think their daughter's had a lot of, I don't know, more expensive presents recently. So a more appropriate present is something like a goldfish. So there'll be all these things that will have fed into that choice that caused the thought to pop in that ultimately it couldn't possibly have come out of nowhere. It had to have come out of something prior. And I think everything that pops in our head is like that really, isn't it? Well, I mean, that that example about what to buy, um, say if uh, they buy the wrong present and then they offer a justification for it, well, an explanation for it would be, well, I thought it would be a gift that you would like and you would give the reason. So again, it is a determined thing. You know, you're you're relating it to that person's characteristics, uh, to what they you know of them. It's you know, it was determined by a whole number of things, to to, to be honest. Um Well indeed. But- and if if of course there was free will and these these things were popping out of a void i mean some anything could have popped into the person's head about what to get their daughter that would be completely preposterous but of course what's popped in is something relevant to that individual so obviously again it is it is And, and i mean you know one of the interesting things is that when um you know uh somebody tries to make an appeal to um, I, what what is the legal term again? You know where they appear periodically in front of a judge to see if they can get out of jail. What what is the term again? I'm not uh, sure. Parole. Parole. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, a judge has to think like a determinist. You know, he has to weigh up well what has happened potentially in that period between they were first jailed and now have they changed in some kind of way? They have to think about their causal history before they think about whether to grant their parole or not. They don't just say, well, actually, he has free will, so he can now do the right thing. <laughs> it's a very good point, actually, that the the, uh, the cr- criminal justice system itself, of course, implicitly is acknowledging a lack of free will when, when we're talking about dangerous yes. individuals and decisions about what to do with them, but yeah. not I mean, when I, it comes- I, I don't I don't want to sound dabbing in the criminal justice system, but <laughs> but you could you could say that, that people are jailed on the basis of free will and judged deterministically when it comes to parole. <laughs> <laughs> Who would want to be a criminal basically? <laughs> um consistent criteria um really there. I think, though, that when we look at Harris's book and the arguments that the the neuroscience experiments, they're a bit more contentious. Uh, you know, you know that yourself from your own reading that that uh, other neuroscientists yeah. might disagree here and there. But I think the basic point we've covered about the causal history that doesn't really depend on specific experiments. I think that's the the more powerful part of his argument. I, I think so. I mean, I, th- I think the experiments he describes where people, you know, they attempt to show when a thought appears, when a part of the brain lights up and then try to find a time delay between when it enters consciousness. Mm-hmm. I suppose in a way that's just trying to add the the science to back up what seems like the more subjectively self-evident point, really. And and of course, the, the science may be showing that. It's hard to say, yes, but I think yeah. in a way it's, it's almost the, I mean, obviously it's important, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily conclusive either way when it comes to what we subjectively know to be the case when we examine our thoughts, I, I don't yeah. think. I mean, I, I can see why Harris would put that in, in, in his book, because he is a neuroscientist, that is his field. He probably also feels that if we're going to demolish a belief in free will, it has to be done through science, uh, maybe more so than philosophy. But I don't think that is inevitably the case. Uh, as I say, I think what we talked about uh, a few minutes ago is uh 
you know, his most strong point, his strongest point, and that's a bit more of a philosophical point, actually. About yeah, it doesn't seem history. like that. Yeah, I, I quite agree. I mean, it's it's obviously the the instinct to go, you know, we'll, we'll put science as the preeminent um, decision maker on this one. But actually, it seems like the neuroscientific evidence it is contested. Actually, how much we can demonstrate um, that ideas begin. There's this time delay between the unconscious and the conscious awareness, so that's contested. Whereas I think, as you say, the philosophical arguments here are actually very very strong and I think really that despite Harris's own kind of neuroscience background he does actually rely a lot more on those in this book to make the case well I mean one of his uh, editors Galen Strawson has written quite a lot about uh, free will and this idea that uh, you know whether determinism is true or not that we we can't be ultimately morally responsible. And yeah, the basic argument is something that Harris touches on at points in his book, and you know, which is that if determinism is true, then our actions are determined by our uh, genetics and our early formative experience, neither of which we have control over, but it sets that causal chain in, in motion and determines everything else in our lives. Um, so if that's true, then we couldn't have free will of the moral responsibility kind. But what also Strawson says, and this is something that, that Harris draws on in his book too, that if it was the case that uh, our actions were caused by random events, quantum or otherwise, still that can't really grant us free will because you can't be the conscious author of something if it just happened randomly. Um, so, you know, that, that that's yeah. the sort of double hit in the argument there. Um, and, yeah, I think... Uh, I think yeah. It, it, I think it's, it is quite convincing because obviously, as you described earlier, he starts the book with almost a sort of assertion that we don't have free will and um, with, you know, it, it's, it's a very definitive claim as if it's almost silly to think we do. And that obviously, you know, will will grate on people that 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 kind of attitude potentially. But I think, as you say, when you do go through the philosophical arguments, it is, it's actually very, very difficult to to certainly make a case for the, the sort of naive kind of what, what they call the libertarian free will, where we are, as you say, the, as if we're the author um, of our events out of, a, out of a void. It just doesn't really seem to hold up too well, that, that yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, I, well, it, it, it doesn't. I mean, we can't conclusively say that determinism is true, but it, it does seem that those arguments for it are more compelling. And I think also that what Harris is trying to intimate in his book is that it's more scientific to not believe in free will, because if free will did exist, it would mean that we were this very special entity in this you know, overall causal world. You know, that we would have this capacity that nothing else has, which is to start a causal chain um, at any given point. Nothing else has that. Everything else is determined by this causal history. Um, so, yeah, yeah I guess there is an argument to be made if you're being a scientist, if you are a scientist, sorry, that, that uh, you can't grant that miraculous power to this originator or alleged originator in us. I, I guess, yeah, absolutely. That that kind of um, ties in with the, the new atheism that we obviously uh, mm -hmm. was alluded to in his biography, the fact that, yeah, he's obviously keen to to, to demolish ideas of the miraculous. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, somebody who's not religious would have, a, would have a tough time actually coming up with an explanation for free will if there were such a thing, because as you say, it does seem to really require something miraculously different about human beings compared to 
as far as we know, the rest of the physical universe that we've we've encountered. And, and, yes, uh, yeah. And I mean, some, you know, Spinoza, the, the arch determinist in philosophy, he, he used this phrase of seeing ourselves as a kingdom within a kingdom. And I think what he meant by this is, uh, you know, seeing ourselves as spatial in some way, but in a way that, that couldn't really be rationally defended. And I think what he would be intimating with that phrase is it's, it's our ego that sees ourselves as apart from nature, distinct and yeah. and uh, capable of what is ultimately a miraculous power. Yeah, so I, I guess coming back to the, the issue that we, we started off talking about, why people are so keen to hold on to free will or certainly so unnerved by the prospect that maybe it is an illusion, I guess um, the issue of, of, of the ego and of, of how we... I guess how we we want to believe we are rather than how we maybe actually are is is fundamental. There's a real sense of the ego is is being under threat here. I guess by by determinism. Yes, yeah. I mean, Spinoza would say the ego is uh, is affected by imagination, and in our imagination, we could conjure up a whole variety of possibilities that seem like they could happen, but in reality, there's only a unique future. Uh, but our ego can imagine things and want various things and think that we we have the capacity to bring that about. Well, we might or we might not. It just dep- depends on what's determined for us. It, indeed. I wondered actually also if there's an ideological factor at play here in terms of how people, I mean, it's you would have to do a survey to know for sure, but how it seems like anecdotally people are attached to the idea of free will. Is it the case that in a more capitalist, materialistic society where um, potential achievement, success are emphasised to, to such a high degree, maybe compared to the, the religious societies that have preceded what we have now, um, has society really amped up the, the, I guess, the ego in people that would really really buy into and really strive towards the idea of absolute freedom and that anything is possible. Um, I wonder well, if there's... Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. And under capitalism, it likes to give us choices. You know, ostensibly, it gives us all these choices. But again, we've got this irony, uh, you know, that behind closed doors, they're trying to manipulate what we pick, what we choose. <laughs> that's what advertising's <laughs> about. You know, psychologists uh, being involved in advertising is to try and manipulate our our choices, and, and that's thinking deterministically, actually. <laughs> so, I mean, while capitalism wants to uh, deify choice, you know, we have all these choices, uh, you know, there's obviously people behind, you know, I'm not speaking, it sounds like a conspiratorial thing, but I'm just <laughs> saying that behind, when I say behind closed doors, I just mean less acknowledged, which is that, you know, they are trying to influence our decisions through various techniques, too, of marketing. And that's thinking deterministically. Uh, if we simply had free choice, they couldn't really control much of, uh, or exert much of an influence even over what we do. Yeah, of course. Uh, trying to, to say, you know, advertise products to people with absolutely free will might actually be quite a tricky thing to do <laughs> in terms well, think, of how I do you... I think so. And, and could I just make the point that uh, over this pandemic that, that Sage were thinking deterministically as well as they were trying to influence our actions uh, so that we would adhere to restrictions. They weren't thinking, they weren't thinking that we had just simply free will. 
I mean, I guess any kind of social science, social psychology um, couldn't really exist as a discipline if we were these blank slate beings in that sense. I guess it's the fact that we, we I guess we are predictable in some ways and in, in the things that we'll be drawn to and the things we'll be repelled by that, that makes any of that kind of um, discipline possible, I guess, any of that, those kind of yeah. ideas. Yeah, um, I, I think, I think also, well, exactly. And I think also another problem with the, the free will issue just to get this in here is that you know if we if we had free will we could do a b or c or whatever but you know if we say well i did a act a because that was the right thing to do that's still a form of being determined you know it's it's not like you just made it up whatever you wanted to do it's still a form of being determined but i think people don't see it that way because they, they they think freedom is acting in terms of your desires. But, uh, you know, being determined could be also acting in terms of what you think is the right thing to do um, as well. well. Well, yeah, again, I guess values that, you know, when, when people are guided by moral values in the way that you, you were suggesting, um, it's hard to imagine how that might happen if we were existing in this supposed mental void where we just spontaneously decide something from nothing uh, each time we make well, a yes. choice. It wouldn't. It couldn't really be in keeping with values or any kind of moral code um, if it was ab- absolutely free. I don't. I don't think. Uh, or I can't imagine how that'd be possible. Well, yeah. I mean, the the thing is that if somebody asks you why did you do that and you give a rationale for it, you're you're trying to say that because of you know, reasons X, Y, and Z. It was, it was. Uh, you were compelled to do it. It was the right thing to do. So it was a determined act, nonetheless. Next, for some bibliotherapy. What can we draw from this book that would help us to live wiser and happier lives? So, you know, as I, as I was reading the, the book, Stephen, as you can imagine, with me being a counsellor, I was thinking about, you know, the mental health or the potential mental health benefits. And Harris himself asked a kind of wider question, uh, might the truth be bad for us? And he doesn't think that that's the case. But if if we assumed that we didn't have free will that determinism was true. Do you see any mental health benefits to that, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, to me, there are very clear and powerful mental health benefits, actually, to the deterministic view. Um, so one one example that came to mind I was thinking about was that people who look back, who maybe haven't um, had a career that's lived up to what they, they, they hoped they could have done either maybe either they've not gone into the field they wish they could have or they have but they've not gone as far and one of the you know this is obviously quite a common cause of people to maybe to have low self-esteem and taking a deterministic view is seems to me to be a very kind of self-caring attitude to take here because of course if you look back on the 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 particular decisions you made that led you to be where you are and you realize you simply did your best in that moment or in fact you did the only thing you could do in that moment and you maybe start to become a little bit more aware of some of the barriers you were facing and some of the i don't know maybe some of the 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 baggage you were carrying from childhood and some of the complexes and 
and other other things you've struggled with, then where you've got to is is the only place you could have got to. And and the good thing about to me about that kind of consolation is it's not actually saying you can't get to somewhere you'll feel more rewarding in the future. It's not actually making a statement about the future that's that means give up now. It's simply saying that you can forgive yourself for for the things that haven't you haven't got right because you couldn't have done otherwise. But if you if you look and and look at well where did it go wrong and you expand your understanding of yourself, then more more options actually open up to you in the future. Um, so there's there's no sense that determinism um, puts any absolute limit on your future um, in terms of or or at least uh, you know precludes things you might truly desire um it doesn't guarantee anything but at the same time it doesn't undermine the the mental health benefits of of i guess of reflection and uh, un- expanding your understanding of yourself and um, would would you agree or do you think I, I, yeah i, I mean I, I think that yeah i think that you know there's there's two really good things that you said there you know first of all is that you know where we are is where we have to be if determinism is true so uh, it doesn't make much sense blaming yourself for where you happen to be because that that's where you have to be um you could not have um you could not have changed that but as you say that doesn't mean to say that uh beneficial change can't happen in the future because what what det- what determinism um you know suggests is that we can change and we can change in a positive direction if 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 that is the case uh but it's just saying that the nature of the change and the degree of the change is determined but it's not saying whether it is a positive or negative or constructive or self-defeating change it doesn't rule out constructive change of course not and as you say if you reflect on uh you know your your biography your past you can see the various uh, causal influences and you can change those patterns. I mean, that's what a lot of therapy is about, looking at the patterns in your life and deconstructing what caused them and trying your best to ensure they don't happen again. Determinism still allows that. Um, and the second, you know, wider point is about self-blame. I mean, I remember reading a, a good book about depression written by... Uh, a rational emotive behaviour therapist, Paul Hawke, and, and there was a chapter on self-blame because he thought that was one of the main causes of depression. It will be one of the main causes of depression and guilt, of course. But he said that there was never a rational reason to blame yourself. And the reasons he gave was that whenever you do something wrong, it could be tied back to three things. The first thing was ignorance. You just didn't mm-hmm. know uh, what to do uh, or what you, you know, how to actually do a given thing. The second sure. thing is that you might have an incapacity in a given area. So you couldn't do a given thing. And the third thing is, well, he called it disturbance. So somebody might be uh, mentally and emotionally disturbed at a given point. Now, if you look at it in terms of uh, determinism, well, each of those things would be determined by your causal history, and each of them would give you a reason for why you could uh, have behaved otherwise. Uh, if you did the wrong thing, it might be that you didn't know 
that it was the wrong thing or you didn't know how to do the right thing. Uh, if you did the wrong thing, it might be that there is some innate incapacity, say like in psychopaths. Um, if you did the wrong thing, it might be that you were severely stressed at that point. And so you acted in a way that wasn't usually characteristic of you. But still, determinism would say that each of those things is a possibility uh, because of, you know, past causes. So, you know, I think there is a compelling argument there that uh, determinism can alleviate us of that of that self-blame, which could affect, uh, you know, issues like depression or punitive guilt. I, yeah, it seems like a, a, quite a humane kind of realism to me, the, the determinist view, because obviously it's it's ex, it's not the fatalism that says it's not worth trying, nor is it the, the kind of naive, starry-eyed, anything's possible for you. It's obviously, um, it's neither of those things, actually. But but it is, it is nice, the fact that it allows people, um, as you said, to me, guilt seems to be you know, one of the, the major negative emotions that has all kinds of toxic effects on, on people's lives. And it really does actually dispel guilt. I, I mean, it doesn't mean that we can't feel feel bad or think back to things that, that we wish we hadn't done and feel sad about them. But what we we can't really do is put ourselves on trial and, and, and find ourselves guilty of the of the wrong choice in that sense because it's not actually a, a logical way to think about the issue, I guess. Um, well, no, and, and you know, the role of guilt in terms of our mental health has been quite a contentious topic. So there are some therapists in the past, and no doubt now, that think that uh, if if a, a client uh, feels guilty, that is a, a good sign, uh, inevitably, or that they need to feel guilty in order to uh, change their behaviour. You often find that that perspective is... Uh, tied to a religious outlook, you know, overtly or covertly. And then you have other therapists that, uh, particularly, you know, rational emotive behaviour therapists, for example, that think that, that guilt is uh, is a distracting or, or a waste of time or it's unnecessary. Um, and and their, their point of view is that guilt, for one thing, it's very self-focused. So it, it, the, the guiltier you feel, uh, the more you might be focused on yourself rather than on changing your behaviour and also making amends. So th there is an argument to be made that uh, feeling very guilty could end up being uh, pretty selfish in some ways. Um, and even if it isn't, it's maybe detracting from learning the, the key lessons from uh, you know, the mistakes that you made in the past. So that that's one of the reasons why they could be sceptical of guilt. Uh, also, it could be very self-destructive because if you feel guilty, uh, you might then do things like self-harm in some way, which can then make you feel worse about the situation. And again, it's maybe taking you away from uh, learning how to change in a variety of ways. Um, also, it could be quite um, contradictory because, um, you know, there's many of us that could be very hard on ourselves um, and yet we wouldn't be with others. So, you know, 
punitive guilt could be quite contradictory there in that we're giving ourselves a far harder time and we're being cruel to ourselves in a way that we would be with others. So if, if determinism was true, uh, then, you know, we couldn't be ultimately morally responsible for what we do. So maybe one advantage of that is that we could focus on what we did wrong and why we did wrong and how we could change that in the future. So there maybe is an argument to be made that allows, uh, you know, easier moral learning than getting very guilty. Yeah, I, I think just thinking about about that issue there from what you were saying, Alex, I think it actually seems like it's quite compatible with a more optimistic view of human nature, actually. Maybe maybe more the, the humanistic psychology movement whereby we don't need a repressive, chastising superego to keep us from being the, the unpleasant creatures that we are. Maybe as a, I don't know, maybe when when Freud was being a little bit more uh, <clears throat> pessimistic in his outlook on humanity, you know, he, he might have believed. But actually, in a sense, the, the humanistic psychologists, you know, they, they were happy with us to actually dispense with that kind of punitive, self-directed guilt, self-hate, and actually just... Um, have a bit more faith in ourselves i suppose that yes we can we can we absolutely can take on board the feelings from when we've caused heart and when we've we've done wrong but but th- but those feelings can that it can be sadness but not but not guilt not tearing ourselves up because that really from what you've described about your your therapeutic experiences it just doesn't seem to get anybody anywhere when they, when they are so attached to this self-condemnation and this irrational sense that they've made a mess of their life and and so on well yeah absolutely that that um the the problem the problem with the guilt is that it could contaminate their self-conception so they they might think that they're so bad that that they're irredeemably bad and you if you see yourself in that light you're not going to make any progress morally uh you're going to think you're seeing yourself in this very fixed way i i think in, in terms of uh you know, guilt and our conscience. That there is a sort of model in descriptive psychology that I find useful, which is that they divide the self uh, or or the person into three parts: the actor, uh, the critic, and the observer. So the actor is the part that acts, obviously. The observer is the witness to those acts and takes stock of what has been done. And then the critic is the part that evaluates those those uh, acts. And in descriptive psychology, they say the the, the critic is uh, the critic's function is to ensure that the the actor acts in uh, a moral or efficient way, and that's its sole purpose. It's not there to condemn the actor in any way. So sure. what I think they're saying is it's a bit like if you had. Um, uh, you know, a very critical director that, you know, after he films a scene, he might go up to one of the actors and say, you know, they were absolutely terrible, uh, but give no no advice on how to change. Whereas a good, uh, a, you know, a good critic would go up and say, I think you maybe need to amend this or that, and it would be specific. It would be action-based advice. So I think what they're saying in that descriptive psychology account is that the purpose of our conscience uh, or our inner critic is to give us specific advice or to learn specific things that we can change. It is not there to 
beat us up or blame ourselves and, uh, you know, consider ourselves as irredeemably bad. So I think, you know, determinism would probably encourage us to have more that um, that kind of critic that you get in descriptive uh, psychology that is evaluating our specific actions, uh, seeing how we can change them and not taking it uh, so much to heart that we we blame ourselves and punish ourselves as we're apt to do if we had believed in free will. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's as if the our superego, our conscience, or or however we want to think about it, and it it's it's as if it can evolve and grow and become more rational as as the, as we as a whole become more rational, and that and that means taking on board what we really could and couldn't have have done differently, or 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 in in a sense where we were determined and and thus not really. To blame, you know. I guess, yeah. I guess we want to evolve our, our conscious into a more useful um, kind of critic, from what you've described. Something that can, you know, set us on the on on the right path, but not just demolish us. Um, well, yes, yeah. I mean that that critic that I'm talking about uh, would be saying, okay, we were determined to do what we did. Maybe we could try and understand why we were determined, and then alter that in very specific ways. So it, it's very much focused on the actions and not getting too caught up on, um, you know, uh, accusing and uh, berating the person guess, themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess if we were to extend that then outwards, you know, thinking about, mm-hmm. so it seems like determinism has has benefits for how we we treat ourselves how we you know um how we we deal with our own guilt and how we let ourselves off the hook actually cut ourselves a little bit of slack now there is the point about what about how we treat other people if if we no longer feel guilty about wrong choices we've made even when they've maybe caused people harm then you know that 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 could be a slightly concerning um path to take if it meant that we we weren't so deterred from from treating others wrongly in the future um what what do you think about that is 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 there any real danger there so i i mean if i understand you correctly what you're saying is that if we were determinists we might be uh we might let ourselves off the hook and uh behave badly towards others and just say well we were determined to do that anyway is that is that what, what exactly you're yeah yeah, that's yeah. Right, yeah well i think that this ties in with a sort of general debate about um you know how moral we are so it's you know someone like freud at least in terms of how i read read him and what i've read also about him is that he he sort of saw morality as something that you internalize you take in and then that you adopt but it wasn't really um it wasn't really organic to yourself you know uh, it was something that you followed because you, you, you know, you had this uh, anxiety of being cast aside by the group. So it wasn't, you know. In other words, we weren't moral for intrinsic moral reasons. Then you've got the more humanistic side that believes that being pro-social and being moral is something inherent in our nature. So I think the thing is that when it comes to determinism that uh if you're not particularly moral uh if if you were mo- if you were doing the morally right thing but for extrinsic reasons such as looking good 
then something like determinism might um, persuade you that, oh, I, I, I've got more of a reason just to, to do what I want. But then I think someone that is swayed by that wouldn't have been particularly moral to begin with, whereas someone that is more intrinsically moral, and when I mean intrinsically moral, that they are uh, determined by moral considerations. They can, they have a, you know, a greater moral awareness that I don't think that they are going to see determinism as something that um, lets them off the hook because, you know, if, if they know that something is wrong and they know why it's wrong and they know why they should do it, um, I imagine they'll still do it. And I don't think determinism for that person would feel like they are let off the hook because, you know, what they're focused on is doing the right thing for intrinsically moral reasons, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was another quote actually noted here from Harris where I guess he would agree with with what you've said there, where he says, speaking from personal experience, I think that losing my sense of free will has only improved my ethics by increasing my feelings of compassion and forgiveness and diminishing my sense of entitlement to the fruits of my own good luck. And uh, yeah, thinking about that, I guess I guess what what we're getting at here is that if this is this is a more rational way to look at the self, um, it's also a more rational way to look at others. So so mm-hmm. obviously, um, as as we do that and we take on board what this really means, you know, it's much harder to actually condemn people, e- even people who have who have harmed us or offended us. Like I mean, the, the obviously the classic kind of cliche examples of of the school bully. You know, people are left who, who encounter bullying are left with years of of um, suffering sometimes as a result, and maybe a a view of this person is is almost demonic that has inflicted this horror on them at a young age. But of course, one of the things that would happen, I guess, if a person um, was more open to some of the ideas uh, from a kind of deterministic viewpoint, is that they would see how that that bully had to act in that way. And if they, obviously if they knew something about that, that bully's, you know, um, childhoods or whatever else, you know, had gone into them behaving in that really negative antisocial way, they would see that that it simply had to be. So obviously not that what we want to do is just easily forgive people that have harmed us. Of course, you know, it's not, it's not as simple as that, but it, certainly that greater understanding of, of why people are acting unpleasantly when they are, I would, I would say, we'd, as you said, for those that are maybe more of a more moral bent, for whatever reason, naturally, um, they they would tend to become, I would have thought, more considerate and more empathetic as a result of this, uh, this, you know, taking on board the the lack of potential lack of free will. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, that if we if we believed in free will and somebody consistently did the wrong thing. Uh, it's quite hard to feel compassion there because you you believe they actually had the capacity to do otherwise. So I I would struggle to see how you could be that compassionate from that point of view. Condemnation or at least criticism seems very inevitable there. Criticism of them set of the person, not just the act. Whereas I think with uh, if you're seeing things from a deterministic point of view, yes, you can say you can critique their character, but you're ultimately saying that it's related to their genetics and 
you know, early life history. So that, I think, allows more for, uh, room for compassion. I mean, I remember reading this book by the anthropologist Ashley Montague, where he said that uh, the principle of compassionate understanding is that even if you don't know why someone is behaving a given way, that if you did understand the causes and the reasons, you would feel sympathetic and see why they had to behave that way. And I think that's what you're saying about the bully as an example, really. So I think Montague yep. is articulating what is the rationale for compassion, which is that if you understood the background reasons, you would see why they it had to be like that. And um, I mean, that's what great art does. It might take, you know, unsympathetic characters and put them in a perspective where we can understand, uh, you know, the wider causes that made them what they are. Um, I mean, you know, that when I say great art, I'm not meaning propaganda. I'm, I'm meaning art that is uh, trying to account for why people are the way they are. Well, I, exactly. I, I was thinking similarly there that the um, you know great great fiction or literary fiction, I suppose, is, is maybe compared to less good fiction. The difference maybe is that you don't have goodies and baddies in the way that we be doing the movies, which no. is is the the simplified reduction of what human beings are. And obviously, sometimes the greater the fiction, the the more nuanced the character. Whereby it's, it, we can we can see harmful acts committed, but we can if the character is well enough depicted. Um, in a way, you see the inevitability of of them coming to make that choice, and you kind of maybe see the the tragedy more of the situation. You know, maybe thinking about characters that Shakespeare depicted, that you mm -hmm. know the King Lears and so on, that were you know you couldn't put them in in a clear cut goody baddie role, of course, but you can see how their life became tragic because they couldn't but help act according to the the, the character and the circumstances that they had. So yeah, I, th I think so. I think it's definitely um, the determinist viewpoint does seem to be lurking beneath the surface actually of a lot of great art I, I would have thought yeah if we take it in terms of their uh, fatal flaws or or their wounds uh, on a psychological level then you know great art uh, you know explores them and accounts for them uh, and not simply in a way that they could have just did otherwise um, I mean this is a point I've made to a number of people is is that if you do really believe in free will, I, I struggle to see how someone could write a great biography of a person. Uh, because, you know, a great biography, in my view, is something that, that uh, gives a compelling explanation for why the, the subject uh, matter behaved in a given way in their life. And if they had free will, it could just be, well, they could have acted differently. You don't really need to give an account there, and you can't really describe it in terms of their, their past, um, their family history, their cultural influences, and so on. And yet great biography does that. It tries to give a compelling explanation for why um, the person behaved the way that they did. Uh, yes, it's I, an interesting point. I mean, it's almost unimaginable a uh, you know a life whereby a person at every stage was acting freely it would all you could really do is narrate the events that, that they they were involved in and give zero explanation for it if they if it was yeah. all self-created in that sense well it is i mean if I, I was to use an example i remember reading a, a great little biography about truman capote and it was trying to give an account as to why he wrote or tried to write answered prayers his last book 
And, you know, the reason why it was trying to give an account was it was a quite a self-destructive thing for him to do uh, because it alienated him from his New York friends big time. And, you know, because it, it was a psychobiography, it was trying to explain why Capote was compelled to write answered prayers at that time in his life. And it looked at his past, you know, in terms of the background that he came from, which was very different to that New York literary society. It looked at how he conceived of himself when he was younger and how he saw himself later in life. And, you know, all these various influences that together converged on him doing this self-destructive thing. But it was not saying that he just decided to do that out of free will. It was explained in terms of a wide variety of factors and it gave a compelling explanation. As I say, if we believe simply in free will, well, he didn't need to write it. Sure. Um, he could have done otherwise. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's. I mean, that is where the interest is really, and I guess in somebody's biography is in the, the complex mixture of factors yes, and trying yeah. to fathom them. So yeah, without that, it, it makes us not very interesting creatures. And well, no, it, it, it doesn't. And in that particular example, they were they were given compelling reasons as to why this man, despite his great success as an author, still felt an outsider uh, and an antagonist to that society. And that's why he ended up wanting to write that book. So yeah, it was it was looking at a wide variety of, of factors, um, and gave a compelled explanation as a good biography would do. Uh, I just think it would be hard to do that if you believed in free will. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so let me put another um, slight, uh, slightly different angle to you here, Alex, because I, I was thinking about. Um, obviously, we're giving you know. I guess a positive case for for determinism here mm -hmm. in terms of um, you know that might dispel some of people's kind of apprehension about the the notion of there not being free will and a, a point that I, I I had I had thought of and you can tell me what you think of this was that even in a deterministic world because the future is unknown to us it's still obviously it still feels open and exciting even though we know in the future when we look back we'll be able to see how the path was determined. So to take another, to take the example of writing again. So if, say, for example, somebody who had always had a notion to write a book and uh, there's nothing about a deterministic viewpoint that, that need actually deter them from pursuing that ambition, even though that individual, say, in five years' time, say that they might come to look back on the fact that they haven't, as it turned out, written a book. Um, they can both, in a way, keep open the 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 feeling of possibility in the present and feel and feel good about pursuing that but at the same time also not beat themselves up in the future if they look back at why a particular desire they had didn't pan out even if actually apathy was part of the story because again um they they couldn't have acted differently so do, do you do you think i'm being too starry eyed optimistic here that saying we can kind of enjoy the best of both worlds in terms of just the feeling of openness and the 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 the, the merit in pursuing what we may desire, whilst at the same time being able to kind of, you know, let ourselves, you know, off the hook if we don't quite achieve all that we'd hope to. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can um, have a certain openness or we have to have a certain openness to the future because, you know, our knowledge of um, the past in particular is finite. You know, if we knew enough, we could predict very, very accurately what the future would be. But because we have that finite knowledge, it is an open future for us. And 
you could, if it's determined anyway, be in a situation where you could see your future's hopeful in a number of ways. But if, if you're a determinist, you would be always looking for feedback. You'd be taking note of how the situation's evolving. And you would also be considering, well, say if you decided to, to write a book in a year's time, you haven't yet. A determinist, you know, reflective anyway, would would be looking at, well, what's, what's going on here? Obviously, there's certain things that are, uh, it's not simply apathy, it's not simply laziness. There's obviously factors shaping or determining that I haven't started yet. What are those? So you could start to look at those and hopefully modify them in some way. So I think there is that, um, there is that chat, you know, you could argue that if you're a determinist that you could have that greater chance of success because you're going to be scrutinising what's happening and you're not going to be getting caught up in the, the blame game, which can sort of derail you or at least take up a lot of your energy and time. Yeah, that was really that was a really good clarification there because I guess what we're saying here then is that for a determinist who, as you said, is taking on board feedback and reflecting on their past, in a way they're filtering down their future possible goals quite considerably um, in keeping with their abilities and what's realistically open to them. So, as you said, our aspiring author, um, if they were to reflect and realise that they have, you know, they really struggle with writing or they they struggle to motivate themselves to work alone or something like that, then it's it's the project for them but as you said I guess for somebody who is aware more of their, their limitations based on the past you know what the path has been that's led them to where they are um, they actually in a sense maybe have a greater chance of being successful in their goals precisely because they are more deterministic goals in a way that they're, they're more well yes yeah. yeah I mean a determinist would be looking at a wide variety of constraints or determinants of what's shaping their ability to write, if that's their, their goal. So they might recognise that actually, you know, when I was uh, several months away writing on my own, I was tremendously productive. So maybe that's one of the, the causes of me writing well. Or it could be that uh, they, they found that when they read a certain author that that influenced then what they wrote in a productive way. So again, they would want to introduce that, those causes back into their life. Or like, or alternatively, they might say, well, um, living with this person is uh, strangling my creative talent. So I might have to make a decision about the future, <laughs> um, <laughs> not just my literary future, but also my relationship future. And so, but you know, it would make you scrutinize all the influences or as much as you can on what's shaping your ability to write or not. You wouldn't be just sitting, looking at a blank page and saying, um, I can just simply do this. You know, and if I'm not doing it, it's just all my fault. I mean that that would be um, not that would be simplistic and very wrong from the determinist point of view. The determinist would be wanting to look at context and various factors that that you know can make us keener to write, uh, more able to write, or less able to write, or less keen to write. Uh, yeah, I think that was well put, um, and it's interesting because um, that where, where I guess we've 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 kind of come with this discussion in a way is to 
we're, we're getting close to, I guess, what would be the compatibilist version of free will, which is obviously something that, that Sam Harris is crit- critical of in his book. Um, the uh, the compat- compatibilist position, obviously, being the idea that um, we're not free from our, our from causal determinism. Of, uh, that's essentially what makes us the way we are. But but when we're in a, a situation to do something like consider writing a novel or pursuing some other artistic project, I guess if for, for a compatibilist, if we are not being coerced to do this and we're not being internally um, driven by neurotic compulsions or some other um, so, something else internally working upon us, then in a sense... Well, that's what a compatibilist would call free will. This is this is obviously um, something that ha- that Sam Harris mm-hmm. is critical of. But um, maybe this is another kind of freedom, but not. But in a way, it's almost the the freedom to be determined in a way that feels authentically right for you. Um, uh, yes, yeah. I mean, the you know when we were talking earlier about determinism and fatalism, that. Um, you know that this this fear of it being fatalistic is the idea that you would always be you'd be like a puppet on a string and uh, you would be simply doing what uh, fate demanded you to do. The compatibilist position kind of clears up that misconception, which is that um, determinism is the case that you know our desires and our intentions and our beliefs have this causal history but they can still be ours, authentically ours, because, you know, if if, if it's connected to uh, our genetics, say, then it's, it's connected to who we are, you know, what we are. And that kind of freedom is obviously an important one. Um, we can see that because, um, you know, if we think about Carl Rogers, for example, he was someone that that focused on how we could how we could um, alienate ourselves from ourselves through our need for approval from others you know he recognized yeah. that the the need for love and approval was so strong it could alienate us from our uh, natural desires um, and, you know, we see many examples of that. The compatibilist position is obviously saying that, uh, that if you do act on what is authentically yours, um, then that is a form of freedom. And we can see that, you know, because say, say if uh, someone was growing up in a, in a very homophobic society and they felt to fit in to get approval that they they couldn't be gay, uh, then they could be acting against their their natural desire there. The compatibilist position allows the possibility for that kind of freedom. And in fact, it actually, you know, argues that it's good to have that kind of freedom. In other words, to act on um, what you authentically are. Obviously, with the proviso that... uh, acting on your authentic desires isn't going to do harm to other people. But, uh, you know, it creates that possibility. It's saying that determinism doesn't rule that out, and of course it doesn't. All determinism is saying is that uh, what you are has been constructed by prior causes. Um, It's not saying that you can't act on authentically who you are. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's in a way maybe arguably highlighting a more important form of freedom there, um, 
you know, the idea that if you are a, a free individual and you're, as you said, you're free from the kind of compulsions and so on that, that Carl Rogers would have would have highlighted. Um, yeah, in, in a sense, there's the freedom to surrender to what you most authentically would want to do. So it's a kind of strange kind of freedom in a way. It's it's the, it's not the freedom to literally be um, operating out of a void. It's the absolute opposite of that. It's the, it's the freedom that's attuned to who you really are deep down to follow that path, I guess. So well, in yes, a way, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, in, in a way, a higher kind of freedom, maybe. Well, it is, yeah. I mean, it, it it's... Um if if it was the case that we weren't determined, then um, we couldn't really act authentically in terms of who we are. So determinism does grant that for us in a way that, that uh, free will wouldn't. Uh, you know, if you think about someone like Sartre that, that believed that we were free in that libertarian sense, that he, he thought we could just construct our identities and... Um, uh, you know, as as we yep. chose, uh, so you know you couldn't have that kind of authenticity, really. It's it's a bit difficult to believe in that kind of freedom. I have to say because it's so common in people's lives to acknowledge at some point, I should have done this, you know, rather than that, I did that to please my parents or I did that to fit in. But really, who I am, I wanted to do this. Um, you hear, I mean, no doubt you've had your own experiences of that. It's so common. And I think the Sartre's view doesn't really explain why, you know, or at least not, you know, convincingly why why we feel that so often. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, isn't it? I think most people would agree that in their moments of clarity or when they really felt that they were kind of in touch with themselves in an authentic way, there was a desire speaking speaking out to them at that point that's something that really resonated with them and yeah if we don't have that and if we're I guess if we're not determined then nothing should ever really resonate more than anything else if it's just just desires that could be any other desire you know if there's no correlation between that and anything authentic within us well I mean you know a lot I mean you know many teenagers and older people as well know the phenomenon of saying they like a given uh, band on music that they don't actually like, but they're saying it, you know, to fit in. Um, and so, you know, the compatibilist position, you know, explains why certain music will resonate with us, why it, why it speaks to us. Um, but we might yeah. deny that. Uh, we might even convince ourselves that we like a, a given group when we don't. To, to fit in. I mean, this is what Rogers was talking about, that uh, our need for approval, it's its uh, its like a compulsion meeting an external pressure from, you know, that other people are trying to get us to, to like what they like or be who they who they think we should be. Um, and, we've, and, you know, that, uh, that need to be loved or the need to be approved of because it's so easy for that to become compulsive. And when that happens, we give up that freedom that the compatibilist is, uh, you know, so keen to, to point out. Yeah. You, um, and I guess we're kind of winding up our discussion here, Alex, but a, a quote that I thought might be a nice one um, to, to kind of, to throw in late on um, from the, the uh, American rationalist philosopher, 
Brian Blanchard, who obviously you'd, you, I know that you're you're a, a, a fan of, and, and we'd obviously uh, shared this article prior. But his his take on this was um, that many an artist and musician have left it on record that their best work was done when the whole they were creating took the brush or pen away from them and completed the work itself. It determined them, but they were free because to be determined by this whole was at once the secret of their craft and the end of their desire. So I I, th- I thought to, that really captured it quite nicely what what we've been talking about here. Um, yes, it, yeah, I mean, it, to, it's both of those things. It's a strange kind of almost paradoxical coming together of of being unfree and and ultimately free at the same time in a way. Yes, I mean to be determined by. I mean, what Blanche is talking about there is that when you know a great artist is constructing a a work of art or writing a novel, that they're being determined by the form, the aesthetic form that's emerging. And that is not a form of bondage or slavery, but they want to be determined by that because they have to if they're going to write a great novel. Likewise, if if we're going to... A key part of having a, a great and meaningful life is to allow our nature to determine us, Um obviously within reason, but still to a large extent. That's an authentic life. Yeah. Well, indeed, yeah. I mean, I guess it touches on all aspects of life. You know, we've been talking a lot about art and creativity, but yeah, I mean, anything that we could really summon up as an example here, I guess if it's done in in harmony with what feels authentically right for us, which I guess is what a compatibilist or a determinist would would probably advise Mm -hmm. then, it's the right thing for us to do, even though it's not free will. It's still yes. it's the right choice. Um, I mean, it, it, it's um, the determinist and the compatibilist would say it's something that we should acknowledge and recognise and within reason cultivate. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think so. Well, shall we leave our discussion at yes, that? Yes, I, th- I, for I think... For- I think- People have their, we've, we've, their fill of free will and determinism. Now. I think so. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I was sure that you were going to um, culminate in a recommendation to listen to ABBA there when you were talking about the, <laughs> the need to not listen to to bands that well, are I, I'm, I'm socially. Not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to say that uh, I need to def- defend that in any way, whether it's deterministically <laughs> or not. I'm, I don't feel I need to defend that. But and, what I would indeed. say is that, you know, the compatibilist position explains why I love ABBA anyway. 